Welcome back to the Work Bold Podcast, where we chat with the leaders in commercial real estate to answer all questions of space as a service. This podcast is for anyone involved in commercial real estate in any way. If you're an investor, a fund manager, developer, property manager, agent, or broker, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and I'm excited to kick off season five. We've been busy since last season working with some very forward-thinking asset managers to deploy space as a service across their buildings. I can't wait to share more about that soon with you. But first, I want to say thank you for your patience during our break. Speaking of forward-thinking asset managers, in this episode one of season five, I'm joined by Jonathan Pierce, whom I have a lot of respect for. He's on the leadership team at global real estate firm Ivanhoe Cambridge, and his perspective on space as a service is refreshing to hear. I thought it'd be cool to moderate a discussion between a landlord and customer agent, traditionally called a tenant rep. So I've invited my friend Dave Kearns from CBRE to bring the customer's voice to our chat today. I got to give him a shout out for consistently speaking up on behalf of his office customers over on LinkedIn. In this episode, we talk about the C words impact on the office market. Yes, I mean COVID. We discuss commercial real estate's newest phrase, the hybrid work model, whether companies will shrink their office footprint as a result, and what customers are saying they want from office buildings going forward. Jonathan tells us what keeps him up at night and how Ivanhoe Cambridge is preparing for hybrid office customers. As always, if you have any questions or feedback on this episode or topics you want covered, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Caleb underscore Parker or DM me on LinkedIn. Both of these gents join me virtually from Toronto, Canada. And having gotten to know them over the last year, I can say I look forward to shaking their hands in real life in the near future. But until then, virtual fist bumps it is. Now, Jeff, let's get this episode started. Welcome back to the Work Bull Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and today I'm joined by Jonathan Pierce from Canadian-based real estate investor and developer, Ivanhoe Cambridge. The company is ranked number 13 on Perry's Global Investor 100 list. 13 is a lucky number for Ivanhoe Cambridge as they manage assets of more than 60 billion Canadian dollars. That's 49.4 billion US dollars just shy of 41 billion pounds. Jonathan has more than 25 years experience in office and industrial leasing and the sale of corporate investment assets in multiple markets. He serves as executive vice president of leasing and development and co-head of development for the firm's office and industrial platforms. That means he's responsible for the leasing of more than 120 million square feet across multiple markets in North America, including Toronto, Montreal, Calgary, Chicago, New York, Boston, Atlanta, Charlotte, Mexico City, Houston, Dallas, Tampa, Jacksonville, Nashville, Salt Lake City, Denver, and over to the West Coast and greater LA, just to name a few. He holds a Bachelor's of Science in Urban and Land Economics and is a professional associate of the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors. Welcome to the Work Bowl Podcast, Jonathan. Thank you, Caleb. Happy to be here and looking forward to our conversation. Me too. Jonathan and I met on LinkedIn in the comments section of a post by CBRE's Dave Kearns, where we've had several debates, <clears throat> conversations about the future of work. If you're a follower of Dave's content, I'm sure you appreciate the voice he gives to his customers. So I thought it'd be a good idea for Dave to join this conversation today. So Dave, welcome back to the Workable Podcast. I'm glad to be here and I'm glad to be here with a living landlord legend in Jonathan Pierce and a former leasing broker who happened to be the most eloquent and responsive leasing broker I've ever come into contact with. So kudos, Jonathan. Thank you, David. (laughs) (laughs) Two legends on the podcast today. If you guys recall, Dave was on the podcast last year, but if you haven't heard it yet, go download episode two from season three. Now to kick off this episode, I want to just sort of set the stage. We've reached an unparalleled, unprecedented era of polarization. And I'm not talking about politics. We have some companies leaning into a future of workplace choice and others hoping for a return to the old ways of working. But I'd like to bridge this divide because I believe there's truth 
to both sides of a debate and certainly many nuances in between. I also believe the office has a major role to play in the platform of work. But Dave, you published an article on finding a cure for the workplace pandemic recently. And to quote you, COVID has changed the job market forever, which will in turn change the office market forever. Can you elaborate on that, Dave? Yeah, for sure. And uh, I got to give you a plug for the stock image on that uh, that article. I think it drove way more engagement than I would have otherwise had. So thank you. Cheers. <laughs> um, yeah, so I fundamentally believe that COVID has changed the job market forever. And I think that's fairly obvious to most. Um, but really what I, a couple of interesting things that I think are, we're already taking shape that have really had a rocket booster put on them is it's given rise to location getting redefined. And, you know, we've seen some really interesting transactions take place. Ones that, you know, were not in the news prior to COVID uh, between the likes of say IWG group and standard charter bank and NTT, whereby they're negotiating deals that allow their employee base to truly work from anywhere in the context of IWG's 3,500 locations. So I think that's really interesting. Uh, and then you're also seeing companies like Dropbox and Revolut basically create their own flex office spaces within their own existing footprint to mirror, you know, a smaller version of what I just described. So I, I think that that's really interesting. Um, but what a colleague said to me recently that I think is important to take note of is, you know, it's one thing to allow employees to work from anywhere. But if most of the flexible office locations that exist for those people to work from are in urban or close to urban environments, it doesn't necessarily give those people the same opportunity that they should have. And in many respects, they probably equally advantage to just go to their company's headquarters. So in that regard, I think we need to see the further proliferation of the flex office sector permeate into many different places and spaces. And we also definitely need some form of a marketplace um, to be able to facilitate transactions. We're seeing early signs of that through the likes of Liquid Space, Meetings Booker, Asana, Deathpatch, you name it, uh, Flex Day here in Canada. And you know, I think these are these are good and they are disruptive technologies, certainly potentially disruptive on the brokerage side, but you can't really stop change. And on the other side, you know, I think that, uh, as I mentioned in my article, uh, CBDs and those prime, prime locations, much like the ones that Ivanhoe Cambridge doubles down on, I think those are going to be more important than ever as, you know, until what I just described takes further shape, companies are probably going to be allowing their staff to work a little bit more liberally from home, but everyone involved will benefit from high quality real estate in transit, uh, well, well-appointed transit-oriented locations. So that's enough on that for me. Well, I certainly have to turn the conversation to Jonathan to get your thoughts on this. What do you think about all this? Yeah. I mean, Dave's comment really that it sort of changed the office market forever and, and COVID. I mean, you know, I mean, should people be surprised by that? I mean, I'm not. I mean, over the last 14 months, we've sort of demonstrated that technology supports remote work and well, by the way. So really expecting everything to be the same as before is an absolute fallacy. It's totally unrealistic to expect that people are going to come into an office to undertake functions that they can do remotely, like wall-to-wall Zoom calls. I mean, if the office going forward is simply a desk and a chair, that, that just isn't going to be good enough. There needs to be a compelling value proposition, a reason to come in, different types of spaces, maybe an environment that people are going to miss when they're not there. I personally do not believe that the majority of people aren't going to want to have in-person interactions. I think what's going to happen is you're going to see people be much more judicious with their time and have interactions with a sense of purpose, be that task-specific or even sort of social or team-building overlays. The other thing that we've also seen is, you know, the challenges with commuting, which I think is going to have a long-lasting effect, office utilization, is obviously how people manage their time, how people use public transit, obviously individuals' childcare situations and managing remote learning schedules. So, I mean, the fact that, you know, the work from anywhere 
is is sort of seeming to resonate with more and more people. I mean, to me, there's no surprise to that at all. I mean, I think this is really accelerating something that already had started and uh, quite frankly, in our view, is going to change office space and the future of work for the better. I to hear you say that, Jonathan, and um, I want to go back to Dave on, on to continue this topic because, as I said earlier, he is the voice of his customers. And uh, Dave, I'm curious, you know, we see these headlines every day almost where major occupiers are announcing that they're moving to a hybrid work model. What are your customers actually saying? Can you give us some real life examples? Yeah, for sure. Well, two really come to my mind. Um, I just finished a deal with a company called Sensei Labs, and I found it to be quite interesting, the decisions that, that they undertook. They ended up leasing a base building or what you might call a shell and core sublet space, which I found it's definitely not the norm in a market like Toronto, where there's more than 3 million square feet of built out sublet space. But they did it for a couple key reasons. They wanted to be in the best quality building in the sub-market that they were in. And they actually wanted to control their own destiny with their build-out because they had pulled their staff and their staff only want to come in, a resounding amount of people within the company only want to come in one day a week. You know, none of the sublet space that we were looking at was conducive to an environment that would support such an arrangement. So they ended up deciding to take on this, like I said, base building sublease space. So I, I think that that sort of tells me that we're going to see a lot of companies want to try to control their own destiny a little bit more. And there's this recognition that a completely new redesign of space and the ways that we use it is on the horizon. Another company who I won't mention the name of has just decided that they're going to let a 20,000 square foot space go in the United States. And the plan is to try to create a regional working from anywhere strategy through the likes of whether it's IWG, Liquid Space, you know, whomever in that category. And then, you know, they're wondering whether they're going to actually have an HQ. If they do, it will be significantly downsized. And initially, the workplace team had the plan of moving forward, you know, full steam ahead with the smaller footprint headquarters that they would lease in a more traditional way. But after explaining the benefits of this sort of work from anywhere approach to the sales leaders in the region, they sort of said, well, we don't even know if we need a conventional office anymore. And the workplace leader is thinking, oh, my God, if I go and lease a traditional space, and it turns out that nobody shows up, my ass is going to be on the line. So I think that that's really interesting to sort of note as well, that in the case of some organizations, and you know, it's, it's always very, going to, very much going to be dependent on the type of business. But in this case, they may literally let go of some of their headquarter locations completely to double down on a working from anywhere strategy. Now, they're big enough that they are not going to say goodbye to all traditionally leased space, but they may say goodbye to a hell of a lot more of it than they would have before the pandemic. So another interesting example. It is interesting, and you know, the work from anywhere has come up from both of you already in this um, in this short intro to the podcast here. And I just wonder, and going back to last season when we talked to Michelle Schneider over at Salesforce, and they talked about how 20% of their staff going forward coming out of the pandemic work permanently from home, and up to 65% on top of that will work in a hybrid capacity, meaning not in the office every day. But she pointed out that they're not reducing their footprint, but then we can sort of deduct from that that, well, they're not reducing their footprint because they're growth projections of headcounts you know, growing massively, which means they're not going to take on any more space, whereas in the past, maybe they would have. But in the UK, there's a stat that's been thrown around that says 60% of all lease income is tied into a lease that hasn't 
expiry or a break clause coming up over the next five years, question begs to be asked whether companies will be shrinking their footprint because of hybrid or because of work from anywhere. So coming back to you, Jonathan, uh, when we talk about work from anywhere and hybrid, does this keep the team at Ivanhoe Cambridge up at night? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's one of the most important questions we're facing right now. I mean, look, there's lots of noise in the system. Do people really know? Dave touched on it a little earlier. I mean, you got to watch what people do, not just what they say. You know, obviously, we're right in the middle of a pandemic right now, hopefully towards the tail end of it. And there's a lot of long-term prognostications getting thrown around. But really, I think what it behooves us to do as landlords is we need to listen. We need to listen to our customers, listen to their corporate HR people, listen to what their employees are saying. And quite frankly, and we've seen great examples of this recently, where you know, certain CEOs clearly aren't listening to their own employees. So I think there's a few things here that are important and, and relevant. I certainly think you will see some diminution in footprints, but I think it also could be mitigated potentially by de-densification and more collaborative spaces as Dave touched on. The other point that Dave touched on, which I think is absolutely correct, is that quality will trump commodity. So I think what will happen is that maybe people will try and get space in a, in a higher quality building, a building that really supports the future of work. It offers more flexibility, it offers more it's a better tenant experience. And I think, um, you know, we're going to see more of that. From our perspective, commodity space worries me massively right now. I think differentiated space, high quality space, well-located space, experiential space, ultimately demand will bifurcate in that favor. So going on to hybrid, I mean, is it going to work? And that's the question we're asking ourselves because everyone's talking about hybrid. And, and right now there's this massive leveler out there that most of us are in the same boat. So I think it's really important to sort of ask how is this going to work in practice? How do you manage culture? It's obviously far easier to manage culture with a fully remote or a fully in-office workforce. But when you have that split, some in, some out, how do you create an inclusionary environment? And so these are some of the things that we're thinking about and how we can support our sort of tenant customers. You know, it's really all about choice, which it needs to be. So you have to be careful that you don't create inadvertent consequences, positive or negative, for a particular subset of employees. And I think a lot of CEOs and corporations are sort of working through that right now. One of the things that could happen, obviously, with a distributed workforce is, do you leverage a global labor pool? And is that a consequence of giving choice? I'm not sure. Um, I don't think any of us can be yet, but it certainly needs to be considered. And it has certainly lots of positive and negative ramifications. Dave touched on it too, in terms of the hybrid model. Does the hybrid model even need to include work from home or just work from home? Many of us, I think, are dealing with issues that the desire to avoid sleeping at work, which I think was a quote that isn't mine, but I like it, but also not to waste time with commuting. But I think it's having choice in terms of a variety of different places that one can do work depending on the function and the purpose of what's intended. Well, this is good. And I think there's a lot of things that we can unpack in there. And I'm going to zoom in on a couple of them. I'll just comment that sleeping at work, that is another big topic of naps. And I was talking to someone just a week or two ago in Japan, part of their culture is if you're not napping at work, you're not working hard enough. So that's kind of a slightly different way of looking at things. But something you just said a moment ago, is that quality trumping commodity and the fact that you guys are listening, listening to the industry, listening to your customers. But what I want to know is what questions are you asking internally as an investor, as a developer of office real estate? What are you asking amongst your team to sort of lean into the future and prepare for the changes that are coming? No, absolutely. That's a great question, Caleb. I mean, you may have read, we recently made an $85 million investment across four fifth wall funds. You know, we are 
challenging ourselves to think differently. We absolutely believe that the playbook that got us to this point in time has gone. And if you were going to rely going forward on, you know, where we've been, then you're going to be out of business. So, you know, some of the questions that we're obviously considering is obviously in, in relation to our offer is what we offer, where we offer it, and who we offer it to, and how we offer it. I mean, obviously, everyone sort of heard of following the money, but we're sort of trying to follow the people. I'm spending a lot of time looking at migration of talents. One of the things that sort of we're trying to lean into the future a bit is, is, is sort of we've obviously seen a lot of people move around and really understanding what's driving that. Is it quality of life? Is it the pandemic? Is it the commute? Is it cost of living? Is it temporary or is it permanent? And, you know, a lot of these things, we don't necessarily believe the key gateway cities such as New York or Toronto are going to go away for a key choice for people to live and work. But what we're trying to do, and I think what I'm trying to challenge my team to do, is really focus in on neighborhoods, really focus in on giving somebody a mixed-use experience. And obviously, we've got projects right now underway in the Rhino uh, neighborhood of, of Denver, Deep Ellum, which is a very gritty music-led environment in, in Dallas, and a creative part of Austin. And, and what do these all have in common? I mean, None of these would have been considered Maine and Maine. They're not exactly the traditional sort of areas and projects that a global institutional investor such as ourselves would have potentially have even considered, you know, a year or two ago, maybe not even six months ago. But they're all highly amenitized, ground up, creative office in amazing and vibrant neighborhoods. And that's what we believe sort of supports this work from anywhere. It's giving people choice and it's um, creating a really differentiated offering. So one of the things that I'm trying to figure out is, you know, when we look at our portfolio, what really is relevant and is going to be part of the future going forward. And as we recycle our capital and we recycle our portfolio is maybe saying goodbye to some of those commodity buildings that we think maybe aren't going to be able to be sort of retooled to be relevant going forward. Well, that's interesting because it touches on the customer experience and you sort of started talking a little bit about it with the neighborhoods or what I like to call the placemaking aspect, creating the experiences around the assets or within the assets for customers. And you know, I'm, I'm used to hearing the term follow them money, not follow the people. So <laughs> it's very super refreshing for me to hear that coming from you, Jonathan. I'm wondering if we can bridge any gaps here, if there are any. Um, Dave, I'm curious, when it comes to the customer experience, what are your customers saying they want from office buildings as they are repurposed for new ways of working? Yeah, it's a very interesting question because what I find is that, and this is not intended to sound in any way arrogant, but I study the change a lot and I'm kind of like thinking they should do a lot of things that they're not doing. But one of the key problems that I think sort of blocks these customers is the supply needs to change its form, essentially. And so, Caleb, you hear me talking about this till I'm blue in the face. Um, I really believe that a full stack commercial real estate product, as you call it, needs to live inside of an asset or inside of a landlord's portfolio in a meaningful way to be able to help with lease up and retention strategy. And so I'll give you an interesting example. I find a lot of companies really still do value their own personal and private space for obvious privacy reasons, you know, the, the maintenance and, and the fostering of their own culture, et cetera, et cetera. But what I find is that a lot of them end up building a lot of space into their private footprints that they only use some of the time. And I've asked customers sort of probing questions like, hey, you know, would you consider renting a flex office space, you know, exclusively instead of doing this? Because, you know, then you'll have a lot more autonomy over how and when you use the space. 
And a lot of the time they get the feedback that either they might find it to be cost prohibitive, which sometimes re requires an educational piece because it may actually not in the, in the grand scheme be more expensive, but it may seem that way at first glance. But really it boils down to the fact that they say that they value their own base. And so I don't think that they even fully understand the types of products that are currently are available within the flex office sector because they're quite far reaching in quite a few of them. But the other is that I, I would really love to see a world where what I call full stack commercial real estate, what you call full stack commercial real estate, lives in the asset. And when the company goes to contemplate their traditionally leased space, as they're making those decisions, they're able to see what's available in the building, you know, in the way of meeting space, in the way of potentially, you know, layering in some flex office space. And I think it would really help them get more efficient. And so, you know, there's a lot of debate around, you know, the use of, let's say, meeting spaces. And some people will say, well, you know what, companies don't care if they're underutilized because they want to be able to have their sexy boardroom as and when they need it. You know, and while that's true that there's probably a lot of companies that think that way, I think it's just kind of a bogus argument and there's got to be a better way for, for people to be able to leverage space that they only need some of the time. And the only way for that to happen is if we see the meaningful growth of the flex office sector and we see landlords embrace more partnerships or do it themselves with those that are in the flex office sector. Well, well Can I, I am, jump in there? Yeah, please. I was about to turn to you. Go for it. So, I mean, I, 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 Dave, thank you for saying that because I almost feel like, um, and we didn't talk before, um, I, I love full stack. We are really focused, laser focused on delivering full stack. I mean, obviously flex is the term that covers co-working, enterprise, spec suite, shared amenities, et cetera, et cetera. And they're only going to become more important. But, you know, I, look, I think it's also important to, under, to look at sort of how we got to where we got to. Um, you know, landlords, and this is, you know, an attempt to be humble here, is that I think we made a fundamental uh, mistake sort of ceding control of these tenant relationships to a third party. I mean, the fact that a tenant customer would come to a building, say we're potentially interested in leasing space, and, you know, a, a landlord in the past might have said they want flex space, you go and have to deal with, you have to go deal with a third party. You have to go and deal with somebody else because we can't meet that need. I mean, that's pathetic. So, you know, yeah. as we sort of look for as we sort of look forward to future, I sort of see it in a few different ways. It's that flex is in a number of different buckets, but I need to be able to sort of meet and fill each of those buckets, depending on what the customer actually wants. Again, it goes back to listening to the customer. It's not that complicated, but it's amazing how many people overlook it. So if tenant A thinks that they maybe need five or 6,000 square feet, but, you know, three times a month, you know, they have training or people coming in from another office and, you know, they swell sort of two, three, four times a month. I need to be able to provide that. It needs to be part of a singular transaction. It, we need to meet their needs because quite frankly, if we don't, somebody else will. So, you know, that's, I think, you know, you asked me earlier, Caleb, what's sort of keeping me up at night? trying to pick the lock on that going forward. Really, it's about getting closer to our customers and building deep relationships of trust and recognizing that the customer, the tenants, our occupier are actually our partners and they're also the creator of value. So, you know, going to sort of white label, I think gone are the days where owners should be turning tenants away and sending them down the street to transact with a flex operator. We need to look at ways to secure long and short-term needs within a singular transaction and remove friction from that process along the way. The model as we know today, I think, is, is, is largely broken. I think what we're doing right now is we're digging deep 
to try and sort of recalibrate and reset and reshape that offering going forward. And it all begins start, and, and, and quite frankly ends with listening to the customer. Well, so you got to do a business school, Jonathan, for, for landlords. <laughs> well, there we go. There we go. It's been announced. Jonathan Pierce is starting a business school for landlords. <laughs> Look, I think you've just defined what space as a service is. A lot of people confuse space as a service and flex, and those two terms are not synonymous with each other. Flex is a feature, and the amount of flex in an asset, in, in my view, is going gonna, is gonna to vary per asset, per business plan, and per market, and uh, the needs per customer. But the service aspect, thinking about putting that customer at front and center, that's the DNA that needs to be to me in the, in the operators of the asset, whether whether that operator is a partner with the landlord or whether they are the landlord, um, that that's got to be the the mindset, in my opinion, of every asset space as a service. So I'm going to put the focus back on you, Jonathan. You mentioned white label. You talked about sending them down the street to a flex operator. How are you looking at doing these deals um, with these customers? Are you going to bring in a partner? like Bold, New Flex, or Convene, or Industrious, are you looking to build out your own space-as-a-service operation in-house? How are you thinking about it? It's a great question, Caleb, and uh, and we have an answer. I, I don't know yet it's the right answer, but um, you know, it's one that I think is going to continue to evolve over time. Um, I honestly do not believe that people like us um, are probably the best equipped to offer a curated flex experience to the end user. I think we are very able to facilitate that, but I don't know that we're actually, you know, uh, the best person who should be the operator at the end of the day, kind of akin to I can own a hotel, but should I actually be, you know, the one changing the sheets and taking care of the guests and doing the room service? The short answer is we don't believe so. So, you know, we're going to be announcing uh, a couple of initiatives in some of our assets sort of in the near future, but it really is sort of more of a white label partner type approach. I think the skill set and the expertise lies with the operator. It always has. That wasn't the part of the problem that was broken. What was broken was trying to run the financial uh, side of it based on an arbitrage of rents. And that doesn't work. And there's a complete lack of alignment. And obviously, when you hit an event like we've just obviously have and we're still going through, you know, economically, it doesn't work and the wheels fall off. So I think what we sort of see going forward is much more of a high touch, high alignment partnership. Landlords, quite frankly, were taking most of the CapEx risk anyhow, but had no upside, and no alignment. And I think the operator model really, I mean, the sort of models that, you know, and we are live doing a couple of these right now, and obviously, we'll look to sort of programmatically sort of roll this out. And we may have to sort of calibrate and adjust as we go, and we're certainly willing to do that. It's sort of more like a, a base fee type structure to the operator and a promote style sort of performance fee for meeting certain pre-agreed hurdles on KPIs, such as it could be occupancy, it could be revenue, it could be tenant satisfaction. But the other thing too that I think is extremely important is all the enterprise data under the old way lay with the operator. We had no clue what our tenants were doing. The operator knew everything. The landlord was fumbling around in the dark with one hand tied behind their back. So I think going forward, you're going to want to see the landlord bring in the expertise in the operator, but also get much closer to the tenant and actually be involved in the ownership and the nurturing of that relationship 
not just leave it to the third party. Because I think, you know, the two things that fell apart were the model and the lack of control and the loss of trust between occupier and landlord because they weren't dealing with each other. Just a few thoughts, but uh, not for one moment professing that we've got it all right and got it all figured out. We're learning as we go. I don't think we'll ever stop learning. Well, every day is a school day, and I have to turn to Dave on this. And certainly if you want to add a disclaimer to this before you speak and answer this question, uh, I I have to ask you, Dave, what are your thoughts on what Jonathan just said there? I don't think I need any disclaimer to say that I wholeheartedly agree. There's, There's really not a lot to add, actually. He sort of covered it all off, and I talk actually quite a lot about what he just said in in the recent article uh, that you referenced, uh, what is the workplace pandemic. So as I said at the beginning of the podcast, the man is so eloquent that I just have nothing else to really say. (laughs) Okay, well, we're going to make sure we put a link to your article in the show notes. So um, if you're listening to this right now, Feel free to go click on that and read Dave's article. I want to turn to something called triangle deals. It's a a concept that you introduced to me, Dave, back last year on the podcast in your episode, and where you talk about how a customer will come to a landlord with an operator in tow. I want to know, can you just lay that out Mm -hmm. for Jonathan? And I want to get Jonathan's thoughts on this. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought it up because I think it warrants like continued dialoguing as I've never completed one. I was close, um, but I think that we may see more of this. But, um, you know, Jonathan brought up some points that I think may make that not have to be the case, at least in a traditional sense. Um, but I, I won't name the occupier, but um, just before the pandemic, late 2019, large, uh, large technology firm approached us in Toronto, indicating that they needed to potentially take on about 80,000 square feet of expansion space. They were already in the market for a significant amount of space. Um, but they highlighted to us at the time that they really only had visibility on about 15,000 square feet. But because of their knowledge of what I would call a broken leasing model, and they're trying to forecast their growth, you know, they, they sort of thought to themselves, well, Toronto's a tight market. We may want to try and still find a way to get hold of that entire 80,000 square feet so that we aren't playing catch up at a later date because we feel confident that we will you know, carry forward along that trajectory. So what we did at CBRE is we engaged our agile advisory practice group and we started to run some numbers for them uh, using traditional rents along with, you know, whatever, you know, flex office rents would be uh, for, for those types of enterprise deals. And we did some modeling to show them what it would cost them to lease that space traditionally for say a seven year period versus involving an operator and allowing them to either set, we either separate out some of that square footage where it just becomes the operator that, that has that space and we license it back to them and the landlord contracts with them directly. Or a different alternative is that the occupier would essentially indemnify the entire space and in turn theoretically have control over it in the case of any reason that they might need it. Um, but either way, whatever way you skin the cat, we were going to structure a deal where we would take the traditional space we knew we needed for the seven-year period and then negotiate a bespoke license agreement with the flex operator to be able to call tranches of space at predetermined dates at later periods of time. And of course, we would you know, do a couple nuanced things such as agree upon certain layouts that would make sense for the operator to be able to sell to the market while we were not using it that didn't require too much capex or time to change. And then potentially, if we never call the space, maybe there's a termination penalty or something like that in place. This deal to me was very eye-opening about the need for the full-stack commercial real estate product to live inside the asset. Because as Jonathan very astutely highlighted earlier, why is it that the 
service provider, which is essentially the landlord, why are they not solving the, the problem for the customer directly? It always has baffled my brain that commercial real estate is literally the only sector that I can point to that doesn't currently solve all of their customers' problems for them. So I kind of thought to myself, if this is the way things keep going, occupiers are going to put a heck of a lot more pressure on their landlord partners to help facilitate this for them rather than have to deal with it themselves because you know they're first of all taking on a lot of onerous time and strategy and it's great for the brokers obviously to be able to do that but there's time and energy you know tied to these deals and then they're also taking on risk that they may not necessarily need to take on if the landlord was operating that space and could do something similar where perhaps they were selling that space to somebody else well the enterprise occupier didn't need it. So I think we'll see more of these deals, but I am actually very hopeful that landlords start to you know, do this through partnership or on their own themselves. And I think there's still a place for the broker in those deals anyway. And just to bridge that real quick before you jump in, Jonathan, uh, Dave, that deal didn't happen. And it w- w- did that deal not happen because the landlord wasn't open to doing the deal? Well, no, the landlord was, of course, open to doing the deal because it was going to be a deal that most likely had the enterprise occupier protecting them on the entire square footage. So they were, it was effectively a traditional lease where the, the enterprise occupier was creating their own flexibility through basically deciding to take on more risk themselves. So they were definitely going to do it. Uh, the occupier elected to pause their expansion plans. It wasn't that they were actually going to let them go, but then the pandemic happened. So that's why the deal never transpired. It was, it was nothing to do with any of the structural elements that I, that I just suggested. Jonathan, uh, if, that, if Dave would have brought you a deal like that, wh- what would have been your response? Let's go. <laughs> Easy. Uh, th- that, that doesn't scare me because, quite frankly, where we're heading in many ways, mimics the characteristics of what Dave just laid out. The landlord was already taking the capex risk. So, you know, you you need to obviously have some bumpers around it because what you can't do is encumber the space that it's basically on demand only and that the landlord has no ability to be able to sort of secure income to that because otherwise the landlord isn't going to take the risk. But if there's a coherent strategy around sort of chunking that space into periods of time that I can effectively package up um, with an operator and take to the marketplace to hopefully meet and deliver some of the needs, as Dave said, the full stack, then why wouldn't I do that? I mean, I think the model that you know I mentioned a little while ago with the operator has many, many, many similarities to that. We actually did a fairly similar deal. It was a variation on the same, but I actually brought in a third party and it was actually Convene in Boston and they actually sort of solved a need for us in the building. I mean, obviously they have a portion of their space where they actually can lease it to third parties and, and do what they do best with, with conferencing and all the services that they offer. But the other half of the space was really just sort of space. It was basically, the, we got them to program the amenity space for the building. So that's a variation on the theme. The white label model that I sort of outlined, again, is another variation on the, t- on the theme. It's really, you know, it becomes sort of like there are three parties to the deal instead of two. Uh, hence the triangle, right? There's the landlord, there's the operator, and there's the end user. They're all paying something or being paid for something. But what we're doing is we're allowing the landlord to meet the needs of the end user. The end user, I mean, you know, they may or may not have specific needs. You know, they may be CapEx constrained. It may be a two-year project. So them spending $100 a foot on TIs, 
maybe makes no sense. But depending on how that space lays out, you know, maybe it makes sense to us. We're doing a couple of things right now, one in Houston, one in Chicago, one in Montreal, different groups where we're trying a bunch of different structures. And the idea being is to sort of perfect a, a selection, a suite of offerings that will form part of our full stack. You can meet this need too on spec suites. We're building out a number of sort of larger spec suites, particularly in New York, full floor spec suites that are 40, 50,000 square feet, not the usual sort of three, four, 5,000 square feet. And we'll do shorter term deals on those. So, you know, I mean, I think these, I think, I think at the end of the day, you can slice and dice this a few different ways. I think, you know, ultimately what's happening is because because people recognize that flex is an important part of the go forward. And one of the biggest impediments in the past was how rigid the industry was and that basically the appraisal community priced long-term cap cash flow above all else. Um, I think right now it's becoming acceptable that a certain part of your sort of denominator GLA can be composed um, of that sort of that stack. And it isn't going to have any diminution in sort of asset value. In fact, if anything, it may actually be accretive to asset value. So again, to me, it's all about challenging the status quo, changing the models, um, and just thinking differently. But the type of situation that Dave outlined, that wouldn't scare us. Oh, that's great to hear. And I, I think I'll, I, I'll pick up on the one of the things you said just now about how the Convene is solving in Boston for you. Um, the space that is sort of white labeled for your customers in the vertical community is as an amenity um, exclusive to them, but also they have their own space that's open to their customers and the general public. And I think that gets lost in the mix. Um, and I think that's uh, that's an important aspect of doing these deals with the operators, in my opinion. I'm curious, you know, you touched on on the valuation, basically. Uh, how do you see how do you see that evolving now? I think it's just archaic thinking, right? I mean, at the end of the day, they've said the fact that landlords and building owners haven't solved how to meet all the needs of their customer. Again, it's just another example, quite frankly, you know, commercial real estate, it does a lot of things well. Uh, it can be very progressive, but it can also be, you know, extremely slow to react. And I think on the valuation side, because, you know, the appraisal community necessarily hadn't caught up with that. One of the concerns was it had to be long-term cap cash flow because otherwise you were going to have an impact on value. But look at other asset classes. I mean, hotels have a nightly contract and they've got a deep and liquid pool of investors and buyers. Um, apartments, I mean, you know, they can be, you know, monthly annual type contracts, uh, not necessarily that different to what's being proposed with flex operators. And again, I would say they've probably got some of the most voracious investor demands. So long term doesn't necessarily have to be the way it is. We just need to get inside and challenge those, you know, sort of almost archaic ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. I'll add um, something to that. And I think Annie Rinker touched on it really well in your, your previous podcast, Caleb, which is that, you know, for certain spaces, if we suggest that they can be built out to a more universal standard, and I'm seeing as a broker that uh, customers are willing to take on more universally standard types of spaces in exchange for flexibility and service. If we do that, then those spaces need to be updated with less free. You can update them as opposed to ripping them apart and then retooling them again. And think of the fees that are part of all that retooling, right? Like TIs and brokerage fees and downtime. You know, if, if you get into the business of being in space as a service, I think a lot of that can go away if done right. So I think it's really important to touch on that as well. And there's a lot of arguments that have also been thrown around about how as we move forward, you know, at least for a growing 
portion of a landlord's portfolio, there may actually be value in having more tenants in the building as opposed to one or two or three very large tenants. Because I think that there could be, if operated correctly, more stability in that cash flow. 100% agreed with that. Well, I think that's a great way to, to end this part of the, the episode. This has been fantastic. Thank you both for sharing your insights. You know, I thought we might get into some, like, not so much a fist fight or boxing gloves as we bridge this divide, but it sounds like to me between you two, there's not a big gap here at all. So it's refreshing to hear that, and I'm really excited to see what you guys do going forward, Jonathan, and certainly want to be part of the conversation. Can we move into the quickfire round? Are you guys ready for that? Sure. Yeah, baby. Let's go. All right. Well, Dave, you know what this is about. Let's go with Jonathan first on the first question here. Jonathan, who inspires you in commercial real estate or the whole future of work topic? I've got one from each. I'll say John Gray, probably in real estate, and draw Poleg in future of work. Excellent. Dave, over to you. And so just to clarify, it's in commercial real estate specifically? For future of work, either or both. Um, this there's there's no rules to this. It's just a question. Okay. Well, I my my two are uh, Mark Gilbraith from Liquid Space. I just think he is one of the most provocative people in commercial real estate, and I I also find him to be absolutely hilarious. So he's he's one of them. And then Pontus Kilman out of uh, Finland, who uh, has become a, a digital friend of mine over the last year. He has an extremely unique perspective on the workplace, and uh, I highly recommend anybody out there following him on LinkedIn. If I can just jump in, I, I would completely agree with Pontus. I, uh, you know, he, he's had some very insightful comments. Well, we will put his his uh, LinkedIn profile in the show notes as well for people to connect with Pontus. Um, Question number two, and I'm going to tee you up, Jonathan, because the question is, what podcast or media do you consume to stay up to date? on the industry trends. And I know you listen to the Workbook podcast, but I'm going to tee you up because I think you have something else to talk about on this topic. So go for it. Well, maybe I'll just touch on a couple that I really like. You know, there's one called the 21st Century Workplace that I found quite interesting. And then there's another one that Sidewalk Labs put out called City of the Future. I mean, there's so many good ones right now, it's hard to sort of limit it uh, for quickfire. Um, the one thing I did want to say is uh, if people feel like they want to consider listening to it, uh, Ivan O'Cambridge has put out a series of podcasts and it's called Do You Miss the Office? So uh, feel free to check it out. And uh, Caleb, I think we'll uh, include the link in his show notes. Absolutely. Do You Miss the Office? So we will definitely put that in the show notes for you. And I'm looking forward to listening to that myself. Dave, how about yourself? What do you listen to? <laughs> Caleb, your podcast is just so good, man. I listen to it all the time. So that's my number one. And then I also love the Prof G show by Scott Galloway. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. And he, he had a drawer on recently, didn't he? Yeah, which was a great episode. Excellent. All right. Well, non-work related question. When the world opens back up, where are your favorite holiday destinations? Jonathan. Sure. Uh, for me, it's easy. Uh, food and wine. Tuscany. All in. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. So, yeah. So, Caleb, last time I mentioned uh, <laughs> Santa Teresa, Costa Rica, which is definitely up there. But I'll change directions. Um, I've made so many friends in the UK in my online musings, you being one of them, that I want to get across the pond of the UK with my family as quickly as I can. Well, mate, when you come, I'm going to put a suit and tie on because I know that's not your game anymore. But just to impress <laughs> you, we're going to go to a fancy dinner. <laughs> that's that's totally going to be cool. I'm looking forward to you to you coming over. And I need to go back to Jonathan, though, because, um, you know, Wine is, is something near and dear to my heart as well. Are you red, white, all of the above? Rosé, what's your preference? I don't discriminate, but I, I'm probably <laughs> most partial to red. 
Yes, and particularly a, a bold, uh, full-bodied red. Of course, I have to say big, that. Big Napa cabs, bold, big, bold Napa cabs. <laughs> Gentlemen, any, any, any last words for people that are listening or where should people connect with you? Uh, for me, LinkedIn or through Ivanhoe Cambridge and uh, welcome any feedback. Of course, it means some uh, great and interesting new people. And Caleb, thanks for having me on. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And it's always a privilege to co- collaborate with Mr. Ken. So thank you. Mm-hmm. I second that on the collaboration side. And um, Caleb, you've been trying to get me over to Twitter, but I'm so active on LinkedIn. I just can't add another one to my list. So LinkedIn is the place to find me as always. Well, thank you. You get censored on Twitter, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they have been known to censor some uh, controversial um, accounts. So uh, that, well, that, that might that's be. That's where I was heading. That's where I was heading. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Thank you. Thank you both. The, the pleasure's been mine. And uh, it's been great to catch up with you both today and looking forward to our continued conversations offline. And for everyone listening today, thank you for tuning in. And until next time, take care of yourself. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Drum roll, please. P.S. If you want to find out about future-proofing your portfolio, head over to newflex.com. This podcast was produced by a podcast company. If you'd like to find out how we can help you with your podcast, simply email jason at apodcastcompany.com and check out our website at apodcastcompany.com.